Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? Happy early Thanksgiving. If you have a Bible, open it to James chapter 1 is where we left off. We're going to zero in on verses 13 through 15 this morning. As you're finding that, let me, uh, let me read you something that I read from R.C. Sproul, who was a great Bible preacher and teacher who passed away a year or two ago. This is what he says about the Word of God. Just listen to these words. He says that, I think that the greatest weakness in the church today is that almost no one believes that God invests his power in the Bible. Everyone is looking for power in a program, in a methodology, in a technique, in anything and everything but that in which God has placed it, his word. He alone has the power to change lives for eternity, and that power is focused on the scriptures. That's why we make such a big deal of working our way through the Bible every Sunday, and we find ourselves in James 1, verses 13 through 15, and this passage today has power to help us live the Christian life. So let me read it, and then we'll, we'll begin to unpack it. James 1, verses 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted... I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. All right, well, last week we, we looked at verses 12 through 18 and did a kind of overarching flyover to, to think about what James is intending to say in this portion of James chapter 1. And we settled on these two truths that James is telling us that, that God is not behind temptation, that there's a difference between tests and temptations. Tests God will use under his sovereignty to prove and to mature and to, to, to sanctify his children. And he, he brings those tests into our lives. But temptations, God never intentionally is not behind tempting us to make us fall. But these temptations are something that arise from this union between our fallen nature and this fallen world around us and this, this enemy, the devil, that we face. And so James is very, very intent to tell us that we should not blame God when we're tempted. In fact, that's what he says in verse 13. And then he reminds us at the end of this passage in verse 18 that we looked at last week, or verse 17, that God is the giver of good gifts, that we, we can trust in God's consistency because only good comes from God. So in just a moment, we're now going to zero in, as we talked about last week, we're going to unpack and zero in on the process of temptation so that we can better understand what's happening when we're tempted in verses 13, 14, and 15. But before we do that, just to orient us to, I think, what would be helpful for us to remind ourselves about the Christian life, let, let's take a look at where we are, the process of sanctification and understanding what's going on in the Christian life when we're facing temptation. So 
The first thing that I want us to realize is that every Christian has three enemies. We're all kind of fighting a sort of three-front war, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And these three things, the world around us, our flesh inside of us that has fallen, and the devil, our enemy, are conspiring against us. They're conspiring against the new person that God has created in us when he saves us. And so these three, th- three things are at war against us and seek to destroy us. And, and we see this in the scriptures. Let me show you this world, the flesh, and the devil concept, this kind of unholy trinity that war against the true trinity's work of salvation. I think we're most familiar when we think about this fight that we're in spiritually with, with the devil. We see in, in 1 Peter 5 verse 8 that we should be sober-minded and watchful because our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, that we're dead in our trespasses and sins as a result of the fall, in which we once walked, following the course of this world. There we see the world. But then it says, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And I take that clearly to be a reference to Satan. So we have this enemy, Satan. Later on in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 6, it speaks of this spiritual war that we're all involved in and the schemes of the devil that are against us. So we're fighting the devil. But we're also fighting the the world, this general fallen society that is all around us. Look at 1 John chapter 2. We'll have it on the screen. Verse 15, it says, Do not love the world, this, this fallen culture, this combination of all of this fallenness around us, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so we know that there's this fallen world around us. But it's not just the devil, and it's not just the world, but it's also something inside of us. And that's what James is pointing us here to, is this flesh, this fallen nature. And we read about this interior front, this third front that we're fighting, this this flesh inside of us. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 and 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And then Peter says in 1 Peter 2 verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And he's speaking, both Paul and Galatians and Peter in his letter are speaking to Christians. So we're going to get into this a little bit more detail later, but there's this duality to every Christian. There's this new man, this spirit man that God has recreated when he saves us, that's still fighting against the remnants, the residue of the old man. So the the new man is fighting against the residue of the flesh. So we're fighting the devil, we're fighting the world around us, And we're fighting the flesh. And when God saves a person, he takes that person who's dead in their sins and he makes them alive. Just just by way of review, remember 
When we went through Romans chapter 8, there's this beautiful explanation of this unbreakable chain that happens in salvation and, and piecing it together with some other verses in the Bible. We know what the Bible says happens when God saves a person. The Bible says that God foreknows us before the foundations of the earth. That means even before we were created, even before the fall, he determined to create you if you're a Christian. Of course, he determines to create all things. But if you're a Christian, he not only determines to create you, but he determines to forelove you, to save you, to foreknow you. And what does he do to those whom he foreknows? He determines to predestine them, to determine where they would end up. And those whom he predestines, the Bible says in Romans 8, that he calls. So their heart is dead because of the fall, and God has called them. He determines to arrange your life so that you hear the gospel. It doesn't happen by chance. God determines because he made a decision about you in eternity past to forelove you and to determine where you would end up to bring you to a place where your dead heart and your deaf ears and your blind eyes would be opened as the call of the gospel would hit your heart. And the call of the gospel, when God determines to save a person, brings with it life-giving power. And the call creates what it commands. There's no faith in you when you're dead in your sin. Your, your salvation was not a result of God responding to your faith that you brought to the table to finalize this good transaction that he offered you. The Bible's really, really clear. You're dead in your sins, and God calls you in salvation, and the call of God, the gospel, when it hits your hearts, whether it's shared one-on-one -on -one with a friend, whether you read it, whether you hear it preached, whether it's pieced together over many conversations, the call, the life-giving power of the gospel, which Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, is the power of God unto salvation for all those that believe. The gospel hits your dead heart, makes it alive, regenerates it, and causes you to be born again. So you were dead, and not because of anything you did, but because of God's sovereign grace, you're now alive. That's, that's what happens to a person. You're alive, that's regeneration, that's being born again, and with that, that gift of new life comes with it the gift of saving faith, which you didn't have before. It was given to you. Ephesians 2 says it's a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. And now with that gift of faith, you are now enabled, where before you were unable because of sin and because your eyes were blind and your ears were closed and your heart was dead. Now you are enabled to trust and see and believe in Jesus, and you believe that he alone has atoned for your sin, that his perfect life is something you needed to stand before God with, and his sacrificial death was on your behalf where he took God's wrath and raised victoriously over sin, death, and the grave and all its consequences. And so now that has happened to you and you've been given the gift of faith whereby you can put your trust in Jesus and at the moment you're regenerated, you have faith in Jesus' work and you're justified, you're made new, you're, you're acquitted of your guilt and you are given Jesus' righteousness. And it gets even better than that. At the moment of your regeneration where you exercise faith in Jesus, now enabled because you're alive and no longer dead, you're not only justified, you're adopted into God's family. You're a child of God. 
You're no longer separated because of sin. You're adopted. That happens the moment that you're made alive and you trust in Jesus and you're adopted into God's family. And that is the beginning of salvation. Now begins this rugged process of sanctification, of living out the new life that we have been given in Christ. Salvation, when we are born again, is not, the Bible's utterly clear about this, and we're going to read some verses, is not to be immediately made holy or immediately sanctified or immediately free of sin. When we are saved, we're made new. This new man, now this new woman, resides in us, but we still must fight the residue of the old man. It's kind of like we have this zombie. He's, he's dead, but he follows us around. And even though Christ has ensured that we will finally and fully win and that he is dead, we are putting to death that old man that still resides, hangs around like a shadow following us around. And that's the process of sanctification. Now, we don't have time to get into this, but let me just give you one little glorious reason why God even allows this to happen. Why he doesn't just zap you and beam you up, Scotty, into instant glorification. The reason he leaves us here to fight this sin, even though we have been made new, is that he wants to put on display the beauty and the supremacy of Christ to an onlooking world through your life as you battle your old man. And he uses the process, the often slow process, of our sanctification to be the evangelistic means by which he preaches the gospel to other people so that he can save them. So sanctification, your discipleship, your growth in Christ is a kind of evangelism. It's a kind of preaching of the gospel as you live the Christian life before your friends in the world saying, Christ is better, even though I still struggle, Christ is better and he will bring me safely home. It's a kind of sermon to an onlooking world. That's why God has left you here. That's why he doesn't just zap you into instant holiness. And we fight this process of sanctification. And God promises that we will persevere. And he promises ultimately that we will be glorified. We will one day be free of all of this sin. But now we're in this process of sanctification, which we can define theologically as simply growing in Christian maturity, growing in, spirit, in Christ-likeness, or we can also call it war. War. We're fighting a three-front war, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Let me read to you from, I know I'm, I'm, I'm getting accused of being hung up on the London Baptist Confession of Faith, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, which um, ironically enough was written in London by some Baptists in 1689. That's why it's called the London Baptist Confession of Faith. It's a wonderful, it's a historic church document. Uh, this is, don't, don't be thinking, oh, this is just some antiquated church history thing. This is a wonderful, if you Google 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith and write modern English, because there's been a modern English translation, this, this is a wonderful document just to read for your own growth, better understanding of the Bible. It's a kind of distillation 
of all of the important, the most important truths of the Christian life. This would be a great thing to do for family devotions. Just read through these short chapters that has all the Bible verses that support these truths. It's excellent. And listen to what chapter 13 says here about sanctification. These English Puritans said, those who are united to Christ and effectually called and regenerated, we just talked about that, meaning you're born again, have a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the power of Christ's death and resurrection. They are also further sanctified really and personally through the same power by his word and spirit dwelling in them. This sanctification extends throughout the whole person, though it is never completed in this life. Some corruption remains in every part. From this arises a continual and irreconcilable war with the desires of the flesh against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. I'm encouraged by that sentence. In this war, the remaining corruption may greatly prevail for a time. Amen? Yet, through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part, in other words, the new man, the Christ in you, overcomes. And I love this chapter on sanctification in this old historic confession of faith because it's so in touch with reality. But let's not believe that this process of sanctification is a war simply because some English Puritans wrote about it in the late 1600s. Let's believe it because the Bible says it. Listen to what Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13 says. Therefore, my beloved, Paul says, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my, abs- in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You have to work out something that's not fully complete yet. For, verse 13, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 and following says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. So clearly he's speaking to Christians. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For listen to his description here in verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's a description of something that's happened to you if you're a Christian. You have died to your old self, and you're hidden with Christ in God. That's security. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Not maybe, it will happen. This is going to happen. You've died, you're hidden with Christ in God, and you're going all the way home. But look at what verse 5 says. In light of this now, put to death what is earthly in you. Well, he says we've already died, but we have to put to death that part of us which has already died. Put to death which is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So do you see this tension of sanctification, we're dead, but we have to keep slaying the zombie of our old man that follows us around. This, this process is so, so, I think, beautifully and brilliantly and obviously inspired by the Spirit is described by Paul in Romans chapter 7, which we went through when we went through the letter of Romans. Romans chapter 7, verse 15, Paul writes, and I think he is clearly speaking of Christian experience. He says, for I do not understand my own actions. 
For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Amen? Eight of us are honest. Sanctification, the point I'm trying to make before we look at our text is that sanctification is a war. Friends, this is the Christian life. And now in these verses, let's look at verse 13 of James 1. God has given us a description through James, a description so that we might be more wise, we might be alert to the schemes of this three-front war, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Okay, look at verse 13 again. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, (coughs) I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Remember, remember, friends, what we settled on last week, that yes, God does test his people for their good, but he never tempts them, never entices them to sin. And strangely, we remember looking at last week that the word for trial and temptation is actually essentially the same word that James uses here. And so how can James say that God, God is, is using the same word, God God sends trials our way. He uses them. He tests us. But then he uses the same word to say that God doesn't tempt us. And so what he does is he goes on to explain that these things happen to us in the world. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The the, the world around us has fallen. God uses all of our circumstances to prove us. But what differentiates a trial from a temptation is how we react to it. That within us, this temptation comes from this process inside of us, and he goes on to say in verse 14 that we're tempted not by God from the outside, but when something inside of us, our fallen nature, connects with the world or the devil. So the the, the culpability for our temptation is always inside of us, and we need to be reminded that God is the giver of only good gifts. God does not dangle wicked carrots in front of us to see whether or not we will fall. And we shouldn't be deceived that he acts like that towards his children. So he goes on to say in verse 14, but each person is tempted. Now he describes where temptation comes from. It doesn't come from God. So where where does temptation come from? Verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now a couple things we need to to look at in this text. We, we are all a mixture. He says our own desire. And I think implicit in that is our own sinful desire. But we just talked about how we've been made new. And so I, I think the Christian, every Christian, is a kind of mix. In our sanctification, we are a kind of mix of good, renewed, regenerated good desires and residual remaining sinful desires. And what James is talking about here is that we're tempted when we're lured enticed by our own, clearly he doesn't use the word here, but it's implied by our own sinful desires. We're all a mix of this old man and this new man. That's that's what Romans 7 is telling us. Thomas Manton, another English Puritan, said that the human soul is like a sponge. It's always thirsty and always seeking something with which to fill itself. And when we are dead in our trespasses, before a person is born again, that thirst is always bent 
towards sin. But when God makes us new, we now have a new heart that has new desires that certainly desire godliness, but we're still dealing with the residue of our old sinful desires. It's this war, this, as the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith says, this remaining corruption that stays in us. And and James is saying here that temptation happens when our own desires, this remaining residue of sin in us, is lured and enticed by these sinful desires. These words lured and enticed are so important. It's It's a kind of fishing metaphor. It, the, the clear implication is that something, something outside of us baits the hook and our sinful remaining desire in us is drawn towards that bait. And of course, the bait is covering the hook just like any fish is not, just not knowing that it's about to be snagged by the hook. And we take it, we bite it, we consume it, we go after it, and the hook sets in us. And when the hook sets in us, it drags us away. And what does it do when it drags us away? In verse 15, it completes the process here. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So he switches from a fishing analogy to... uh, a conception, a conceiving, a birth analogy. The fish bites, our, our inward sinful flesh bites the bait. And all of a sudden now he switches analogies in verse 15. And he says it's like this, this, this desire in us is fertilized by this temptation outside of us. And it produces, it gives birth to this wicked child, this wicked fruit of temptation and, and external temptation and internal desire. And what, brings, what comes forth is sin. And what does sin produce? It always, always produces death. That's what this text is saying. It's, it's describing to us, really, how even after we are still believers, are, are, are drawn into temptation, how we, we stumble and we fall. Now, this happens every day, obviously for unbelievers as well, but clearly James is writing to Christians and he's trying to encourage them. He's equipping us in the war against our remaining sin. So to conclude, let's, let's look at some truths that will help us understand temptation and, and Lord willing, fight it. I want us to understand temptation better from these three verses. The first thing that we, we want to say to understand temptation better is that to be tempted in and of itself is not necessarily to sin. Notice that, that in verse, verse 13, he's talking about temptation. And then verse 14, he's saying a person's tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. So there's this sinful desire inside of us that then connects with this temptation and it gives birth to sin. There's a process here. But that doesn't mean that necessarily temptation is sin. What is sinful is this this sinful aspect of our desires in us. And again, we're a mixture of good and bad desires. That's what it means to be a Christian in process. 
But what happens to us, I think, and I know this happens in, in, in my life, is that sometimes we equate temptation with the kind of inevitability of sin. We, temptation comes, and all of a sudden we just give in and fast forward to verse 15 as if it's inevitable. We, we see the bait, and we just think, oh, well, here I go again, as if we have no power to fight against the, the lure, the enticement. We do. We do, and we're going to talk about the power that God gives us. But don't fall into the trap that to be tempted merely is to sin. That's not the case. And part of spiritual maturity, in fact, a strange thing happens when you become more mature and you become more Christ-like and you grow, is you actually become more aware. You become more discerning of the fallen world around you. You become more suspicious of your own desires and you become more, more savvy to the devil's schemes. And so this strange thing happens in, in the Christian life is actually as we grow in maturity, it's like we, we're much more aware of all the things that tempt us which can, if you're not aware of that, actually discourage you and make you think that, man, I'm a total wreck. Well, yes, you are, but in a kind of strange paradox, that's a kind of sign of maturity. You're becoming more sensitive to sin. You're becoming more aware of your own weakness. You're becoming more dependent on Christ. Friends, that's spiritual growth. And so I'm, I'm pleading with, with somebody that is in a kind of rut. A rut where you just, you know, I, the picture I have in my mind, and those of you that have ever done land navigation at Fort Benning will, will know this. And let me explain it to folks, civilians that have never done land navigation it means to navigate it's like when army guys are being trained to 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 go to a certain place to an objective you're, you're given a grid coordinate you're sitting here with your compass at least that's what it was back in the 90s i don't know what you got these gps's now and you just you just bebop through the woods and you just get there i don't know but we used to actually have to shoot an azimuth you'd get you'd get a map and you'd say okay this is where your platoon is and you need to take your platoon to this point, you know, a couple clicks away, a couple, you know, a, a, kilom- a, a couple, yeah, whatever, 2,000 kilometers away, not that long, <laughs> about a mile away. <laughs> and you got to move through these woods to get to this point. But it can be very tempting because this land navigation course has been used for decades at Fort Benning, and they changed the points around. You know, they don't leave the point there. They don't leave the, 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 the point, the same place for every, every land navigation course. And so you're walking through the woods and you're following your azimuth. You're, you're going on what you know to be the right path. But your right path oftentimes will take you through the bush, like right through a thick bush where you get torn up. And it's very tempting. You see like these well-worn paths, and you're like, oh, well, you know, the guy before me, might, he might have had the same point. So I'll just, I'll just kind of go on this path. You know, it just, it's just tempting to go through these paths that seem to have been taken before. And that's the way temptation works. We, we, have, we have like a history of sin 
in our lives. And we're just used, it's like muscle memory in the wrong direction. And we're all navigating, we're all trying to go on that azimuth, that we're all trying to go due north as the gospel points us. But you know, living for God, is, it's resisted in this world. And sometimes you've got to walk through a briar patch. And it just feels easier. To, this, this path just seems easier. And I've done it before. And we just kind of give in to sin. We just give into it when we're tempted. Friends, to be tempted is not to sin. You don't have to walk down all of the paths that you have ordinarily walked. You have been rescued. You've been given a new heart. You have a new master. Christ, you're not enslaved. To be tempted is not to sin. Second thing we need to know when we want to understand temptation better is that temptation always lies. It just always lies. And this is, man, this is ground zero in the battle against sin. Notice those words that James uses in verse 14. He says that we are lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, I'm not much of a fisherman. I mean, I fish every now and again, but I know that the people that make lures, like artificial lures, they make them as pretty and shiny as they can possibly be. I mean, you're trying to trick the fish into thinking that it's actually something good. And that's exactly how temptation and the world, the flesh, and the devil work. It says, temptation always says, everything's going to be okay. No one will ever know. This is just between you and me. It promises secret joy, but it never delivers Behind the shiny enticing is the rusty hook of death. And sin never, never reveals itself when it's enticing you. And part of Christian maturity is understanding, being able to look beyond that because we're saturated with God's word and we're in community being able to look beyond that and to see where it's taking us. It's taking us to sin and death, not to life and joy. The third thing that, that I think we need to understand to understand temptation is that temptation is often positional. What do I mean by temptation is often positional? Now, sometimes you just cannot avoid temptation. You have to live in this world. Jesus says in his priestly prayer, his high priestly prayer for his disciples, and I think for all Christians, in John chapter 17, he says, Father, I'm not taking them out of this world. You're not taking my followers out of this world. You're leaving them in this world so that they're in this world, but they're not of this world. We, we do not have the luxury to retreat to the desert and be like spiritual hermits that avoid all temptation. You, you have to, if you're a soldier, you have to be in that platoon where pornography and horrible language and the degradation of women is always present. If you're working in a workplace, you have to be in a place oftentimes where, where the, the values 
of the world are so prevalent where backstabbing and, 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 and self-promotion are present. You, you, it, it's impossible oftentimes to remove yourself from that situation, and that's part of God's design. You are in the world, but you're not of it. But we can seek to minimize our proximity to temptation. There are some things that we just cannot remove ourselves from. We just have to be in that position. But there are ways that we can minimize. So we want to think about, okay, is this just something I have to face and fight and resist? Or is this something that I can remove myself from? And you spend all day around wicked people in an overly sexualized culture resisting and then if you give yourself that evening to just you and a screen where you're just watching people sin, you're, you're setting yourself up for failure. And that's a situation where, okay, during the day in that position, I have to be there. But when it's just me, I can remove myself from exposing myself as much as possible to sin. My first pastor after I became a Christian, Bill Brewer, in this little church in El Centro, California said, and this has stuck with me all my years, he said that what you feed grows and what you starve dies. That's the way temptation is. In Christian maturity, Christian life is about understanding, avoiding things that we can't avoid at all costs and not putting ourselves in the position of temptation. There's all sorts of applications to this. Maybe you're in a group of friends that is just, it's just gossipy and it's just, it's just, it just discourages your soul. Maybe you need to remove yourself from that. Or maybe you need to just do the awkward truth bomb and say, hey, brothers, hey, sisters, every time we get together for this little fellowship, every time we get together with our kids, all we do is gossip and talk about people. This is, this is, this is bad for us. Or, or maybe you're dating somebody and you're not married yet and you are just so used to being alone with each other. And when you're alone with each other, it's hard to keep your hands off of each other. Amen? No, don't, don't, don't act. Come on. Maybe you need to put up boundaries in your relationship and be wise. Because temptation is positional. And when you get on the backside of a hill, that decline, that slope going down is really hard to stop. The fourth thing that, that I think we need to understand to understand temptation is that we all have our own sinful desires. Look again at verse 14. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured, enticed by his own desire. I think there's something to this. That each of us, in, in, there's a general sense in which there's some large categories of sin, which I think all of us are prone to. It's just part of being human. But I think that part of what James is getting at here is that each of us have our own kind of species, you know? Our own sort of, our own sort of type of sin that we may be vulnerable to that somebody else around us may not be, and they may be vulnerable to things that we may not be. And so this should produce a kind of humility in us. There are things that you don't struggle with 
that your brother and sister in Christ may struggle with, and that's an opportunity for you not to be legalistic and look down the end of your nose and say, I can't believe that person struggles with that. How can you struggle with that? That can kill grace-centered gospel culture. It kills it. Because rest assured, even though that might not be part of your own sinful desire, you've got your stuff that they're stronger in. And so this should produce a kind of humility, a kind of gentleness in us. That's why when we gather together in our member meetings, we talk about this responsibility we have to, to, take, to, to have watchfulness over one another. And this is a difficult, this is a difficult note to strike in church culture, that we would have a kind of, a kind of humble boldness in each other's lives. I know this thought process has worked out in all of our minds. You know, we see something in somebody else's life that just kind of uh, doesn't accord with the Christian life, and we know they're a brother or sister, and we feel like we should, we feel like we should say something to them, but we don't because we feel like, oh, I, you know, I'm a hypocrite, and so we just kind of, uh, let me just, uh, what do I do there? And if we could just push through that and in a kind of humble boldness, just admit, hey, brother or sister, look, I've got my own stuff. In fact, man, I, I struggle with this, this, and this. But I love you. I love you more than I love my desire to avoid confrontation or misunderstanding here. So I'm actually preferring you. I'm loving you more than I love myself. So I see this in you. Come on, help me with this. And by the way, if you see stuff in me, point it out to me. And we point it out to one another in a kind of humble, gracious way because we are responsible for one another. Uh, let, let's just, can we just admit something? This is hard and we're not there yet. None of us are, right? But th like this is, this, is where, this is where power for sanctification resides sanctification, war. Nobody goes to war as an individual. Nobody at Fort Benning is put on a plane by themselves and sent to Afghanistan. <laughs> That's crazy. I wouldn't get on the plane if they did it. No, I ain't going. Give me my boys. Well, the Christian life is not meant to be fought alone. And, man, we, we're, not, we're not there. You know what? I just feel this impulse... I just feel like I need to pray for us in this right now. Just that we would be more humble, that we would be more watchful, that we would be more uh, just spirit-driven, that, that we would strike this beautiful biblical balance better because we're not there. Very few Christians are, but, but we can't give up on this. We, we have to strive for this. Let me, let me pray for us. Lord, help us with this. We... we we're, we're insecure, we're overly sensitive, we, we care more about our own feelings and we do other people's sanctification, we confess all these things. We, we fear coming across as overbearing and legalistic, and, and sometimes we are, we, we struggle with that. Lord, give us a deep, resounding humility, and, and give us a... a care for one another. We need to love one another more than we love ourselves. And, 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 and implicit in this is all kind of awkwardness and misunderstanding. But Lord, help us with this. Help us with this. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Paul says in Galatians 6, 1 and 2, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We, we should bear one another's burdens. And by the way, just one little thing here about just church culture and Christian culture. Realize, and this is getting back to Romans chapter 14 and 15 that talked about disputable matters and people with weak and strong consciences. Friends, in areas where you may be strong, in areas that are disputable matters, like, for example, something like alcohol, if, 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 if the Holy Spirit has led you in a way that you are able to partake in that without it being sin for you according to your conscience, which I think is a biblical possibility, don't allow your freedom to be a stumbling block for somebody else who might have a sinful desire for that particular thing. People, cult, church cultures like us that love grace, that love the power of the gospel, oftentimes major too much in grace and our own freedom that comes from grace. And by doing so, we end up discouraging and crushing and being a stumbling block to other brothers and sisters who are struggling with things that we don't necessarily struggle with. Friends, let's not do that. Let's not do that. It's not good for, for the corporate sanctification of the people that God has given you to do life with. And then the final, the final thing, the final truth to help understand temptation is we just need to remember that the gospel enables us. The gospel enables us to resist temptation. There's something more going on here in this spiritual war than, than, your, than your grit, your skill, your awareness. There's just something more. There always is. God has given us means of grace by which we can resist and fight temptation and sin. Listen to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So how are we transformed? How is a Christian transformed? How is their mind renewed? I would argue that the balance of the rest of the New Testament says that central to the renewal of the mind is the word of God. Psalm 119, verse 11, David writes, I have stored your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And as we take in this word, friends, that's why we preach through the Bible. That's why you don't need to hear my ideas or things that I think are important. That's why we just preach through the Bible. We need the word of God. And what does the word tell us? The word tells us that Jesus endured temptation for us, and that he identifies with us. Listen to Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. We read this last week. It bears repeating. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Just follow the logic of the writer of Hebrews. He's saying, you have a high priest, someone who represents you, Jesus. As Springer read for us earlier from Hebrews 7, he's unstained, he's holy. He doesn't need to offer continual sacrifices because he has once for all dealt with sin. And because of that, we can grab onto, we can hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So that means that when we do give in to temptation, 
Jesus is not disgusted with us. He's there with us, identifying with us, calling us to come unto him. But he is one, Hebrews 4 continues, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive, receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So there's this moment, I think what Hebrews 4 is calling us to, that we have a decision to make when we face this temptation, when we're being enticed by the lie, when we're in a position that we can't get out of. And what Hebrews 4 is telling us is that we have somewhere to go. We don't need to cower from God. We can go to him because Jesus has been there and he's provided access for us. He's felt what we're facing. He's not unacquainted with it. And we don't have to hide from God like Adam and Eve did, but we can go to God with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy. That's help. That's spiritual power and find grace to help in time of need. God, please just develop in this, this instinct to go to you in that critical moment rather than to hide from you. And what does it look like to go to God? It's, that's just not something in your head. It means to go to a brother, to, go to, to bring it to light, to shine, shine the light of community and confession on your temptation. I'm weak. I need help, God. And what would it look like if all of us just, just were brutally honest with one another? I think it would be a kind of shock to us. We would, we'd, we'd have, we'd, we'd, man, he'd be like, whoa, what's going on here? But we'd actually get down to living the Bible. And not only has he given us this pathway of confession with one another and Jesus who understands us, there's something more powerful going on inside of us rather than, other than just our remaining residue. There's the Spirit of God that indwells us. Listen to this, Romans 8. I know everything kind of eventually gets around to Romans. I know that. Romans 8, verse 7 through 11. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. He's speaking about the unbeliever. The unregenerate mind, the person who's dead in their sins. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. There is inability. Sin has made us totally unable to do anything to make ourselves right with God or resist sin. We are being tossed to and fro. We are enslaved, Romans 6 says, to sin. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however... Speaking to the Christian now, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, even though you still deal with the residue of the flesh, clearly. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit, does not, spirit of Christ, does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, listen to these next few sentences. But if Christ is in you, and he is, if you're a Christian, his spirit dwells in you, although the body is dead because of sin... We're still dealing with this zombie. The spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and he does if you're a Christian, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will, not maybe, not might, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So he's going... To give you 
spiritual power through his word, through his people, through Christ's work on the cross, through the indwelling spirit to give life, to beat down the residue of the old man that's in you, and he promises to bring you safely home. That's, that's friends, that's how we fight temptation. And all of us are smack dab in the middle of this fight, and we will be until Jesus comes back or we breathe our last. So let's roll up our sleeves and let's understand it and let's fight it. And let's go towards the good God who gives good gifts and who's promised that he will bring us all the way home. Lord, help us with this. Help us. It's easy to have 20-20 vision when we're all sitting in this cozy sanctuary with our Bibles open, sitting next to brothers and sisters. This is like the resupply tent where we get a good night's sleep and a, and a warm plate of food and a little R&R. But we're leaving the comfort of, of this post and we're going back on mission, we're going back in the battle. We're going back into the fray. Use, use this time, use these words, use this passage to equip your saints so that we might fight. That we might remember that we don't have to give in, that to be tempted is not to sin, that temptation is lying to us. That there are situations we need to move out of and that the gospel enables us because of Jesus, because of what he's done, because of your spirit that you've given us, because of the family that you've given us, of other believers, we can fight. In fact, you've promised that we will fight and we will win. Lord, having said that, I know that there are brothers and sisters, children of God in this room, who are feeling like they are getting kicked in the teeth and that they are losing. Lord, lift up their eyes. Stabilize them. Fortify them. Embolden them. Put steel in their spine for the fight. Encourage them. Lord, lift up their eyes from, from their failure and put their eyes on the victorious king. Strengthen them, Lord. Strengthen them. Give them hope. Give them, give them a, a sweet, small victory this week and, and give them a taste and a, and, a, and a spark for the fight. And Lord, let those of us who, who are stronger, who, who, who are so prone to just be judgmental or just... Just rest in comfort. Let us, let us roll up our sleeves and help and, 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 and dig and jump in the, the trench with our brothers and sisters and, and help and help and, and care for and love. Because we've got our own sinful desires that will sneak up on us in coming days. And for my friends in this room who are not yet believers, Lord, I pray that, that, that by our time in this word, you, you have opened up their eyes to their inability. Lord, I hope this text hasn't made them feel good. 
and made them think, oh, if I just try harder, I can do this. I hope that this text has made them feel despair so that they would finally let go of themselves and their own grit and lay a hold of grace, which can only be found in Jesus. And that they would trust not in their own self to live a better life, to improve themselves, but they would realize that they are dead and they need to be set free. They need to be made alive. And if they realize that, Lord, I think that's, that's evidence that you are giving them a new heart so that they can turn from trusting in themselves and put their hope in Jesus, to trust in him, to say, not, not what I've done, but what Christ has done is the only thing that will make me right before a holy God. Lord, do that for my friends that came into this room dead in their sins. And then, Lord, join them together with this church family or another church family that believes the Bible so that they can fight temptation for the glory of God. And then, Lord, use, use our struggle of sanctification, our fighting of this war. Use it as a kind of aroma of evangelism to an onlooking world. Let the Christian life be lived so authentically and genuinely and honestly amongst the people in this room that it's used as a evangelistic sermon to the people that you put us in front of. Make it attractive, Lord, to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.